The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I am your host, Sean Mobley. Today is part two of my conversation with Helen Park Wall, a docent at the Museum of Flight who made a career with the FAA, eventually retiring as the FAA Air Traffic Division Manager of the Northwest Mountain Region. I had a lot of listeners hear part one and ask me when part two would come out, so I went ahead and expedited that and moved it up to today. In part one, which I recommend you listen to earlier in the feed, Helen talked about some of the earliest days of air traffic control. Today, however, our conversation is still in those earlier days, but she talks about some of the technology and incidents that prompted change and navigation and communication between ground and pilot to keep the skies and runways safe. So radios come along, people can now talk to each other. Right. How does that, that, that helps when you are in one spot, right? If you're at an airport, you can let people know, hey, come into land, no, not you. But what about when you're in the middle of nowhere? Well, uh... Tied with the development of radio was the development of uh, navigation using a system called VOR radio range, and that's a very high-frequency omni-range. It was a system of uh, navigation aids that was installed throughout the country. And what this did is the pilot had in his airplane a receiver. He could tune in a frequency, and he could look on an instrument that would tell him it had similar to a compass rose, 360 degrees, and some arrows and flags that moved left and right. He could determine if he was flying towards the station or away from the station and when he passed over the station. And these were strategically placed. And if you drew a line through all of these, you had what amounted to an airway. An airway is nothing more than a highway. It's in the sky. That's the basic difference. That became the major system for uh, navigating. What happens next is that uh, you have Archie League, and that's kind of what evolves into like the terminal. And then uh, they created facilities that they used as uh, the en route facilities, and they started out with four of them. That was in 1934. This is also when you had the major air carriers come into being. Okay. And they're flying more and more and more. And it was in their interest also to be safe. And I think everyone had the same thought. So the Department of Commerce was responsible for setting up in route facilities. The very first one was in um, Newark, New Jersey. And what this did is it provided a separation and a system for the airplanes to fly that was in that airspace. It was after they left the terminal area, and then they started flying en route. And I mentioned previously the structure on the air, the airway structure that pilots could fly. The controllers would use time, speed, and distance to clear airplanes on routes via these airways. 
so that no two were flying at the same time at the same altitude, especially when they were crossing over. This is all before radar, and this is back when it was called manual control. You didn't have anything to look at. You right. just had strips of data on an airplane that was flying a route, and let's say it was going to fly from here to uh, California somewhere. And you would have every maybe 80 miles a point where it would cross another airway. And you would have uh, a piece of information on how long it took that airplane to get there. And you would mm -hmm. mentally do that in your mind. Wow. And at those times when two airplanes were going to be within 10 minutes of each other, you had to change one of the altitudes. They had to be low X number of minutes before, lower by 1,000 feet, before they crossed at these intersecting points what we used to refer to as conflictions. So it was uh, a very work intensive, but this is where it all started in the Enroute system. And those three facilities, basically, that's what they were doing. Because it isn't under radar control till we get into World War II and we start using uh, radar. Mm -hmm. And then I think we, we talked about, uh, we use the word transponder. And uh, a transponder is a piece of equipment that was added when the radar system began to be used significantly at first all you saw was the raw radar return on the airplane but the transponder itself was a device that was installed in the airplane that sent out a signal from a ground station it was interrogated and it would create a bright light on a radar screen and you could change it from one slash or two and if you ask the pilot to ident hold the button down it would get very bright. And that was how they confirmed the, the identity of an airplane. The airplanes themselves had to be identified additionally while he's looking at this radar scope, it's either flat right in front of him or it's vertical. Uh, the, what they preferred to have was a, a flat one because they wanted to use plastic markers called shrimp boats and they would use pencils that they could wipe off, a, a grease pencil, and they'd write the call sign and the altitude and if he was climbing or descending. And that is how everything was tracked because you didn't have any altitude readout yet. Right. But just draw right on the Yes, draw right, right on, on right on the shrimp boat and just push it along and push it along and that's how they identified. And uh, the key was how can you visualize things? And maybe I haven't stressed this before but in that training, when you talk about doing things manually, you have to be able to visualize in your mind when people are crossing or descending and where they are. Same thing is true on the radar. You have to be able to project and still visualize based on speed. Is someone going to cross? Do they need to descend now? Do they need, can you, should you wait? Right. Uh, the airway structure evolved. It was designed so that there were places where you would climb and places where you would descend, but not always. It just depended on mountains, you know, the terrain, any other kinds of obstructions. So from early days of relative chaos, where people, especially as aviation started picking up, and they had no real way of talking to each other or even navigating long distances to now you can identify planes uniquely, if not down to altitude, et cetera, and communicate with them to help them get from place to place. You know, as I mentioned, Sean, it was early in the 30s that uh, the centers were developed, and almost all the major changes uh, resulted from uh, an accident that was quite prominent, 
Uh, one of the hap one that happened in the 30s was the 1931 crash that killed everyone on board. That uh, included um, Newt Rockney from um, Notre Dame. So that got so much attention that there it was important that people wanted to see change. They wanted to see improvement, and that's where the agency then seemed to develop even more. The Civil Aeronautics Acts of 1938. This emphasis was placed by Roosevelt. You see the system start to change. You see the uh, the agency's changing, and they begin to understand who is responsible for maybe investigating accidents, like the Civil Air Aeronautics Board, who would be responsible for certifying the controllers, certifying the pilots, and now you're looking at the Federal Aviation Agency. And these things all evolve over time, but with World War II, you saw a tremendous uh, evolution in equipment, in the speeds of airplanes, and in uh, the navigation equipment especially, and what people were using. Radios had enhanced tremendously too, so that pilots and, and other people were able to communicate to each other. Do you have any closing thoughts about these very early days of air traffic control that you want to share? The importance is that when you think in terms of the pilots, they were quite brave and they did tremendous things. But there was a lot of innovation surrounding all the pilots, and that's the rest of the system. The dispatchers, the people that figured out their weight and balance, the controllers that they talked to, all of the people that helped the system evolve into what we have today, and it's the safest system in the world. Would you have wanted to be an air traffic controller in the 1920s? Oh, I think I would have had I known about it. Always looked at airplanes, always wanted to fly. So yeah. the two go hand in hand. Awesome. Well, Helen, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. If you want to chat with Helen in person, come on down to the museum on a Monday. She's here most Mondays on her docent shift. She'll be more than happy to tell you more stories about the history of the FAA or tell you stories from her own experiences, both as a pilot and as an employee of the FAA. If you like what you heard, please rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. And until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>